every step that took him to Calvary. Watch the nails pierce his feet and his hands. But I'm here in this moment, 2,000 years later. I know in my heart it's all true. So I'll tell it today like I would have back then when the old, old story was new. I'd run to that cold, empty tomb. I would stand on the mount where Jesus ascended and rejoice that he's coming back soon. But I'm here in this moment, 2,000 years later. I know in my heart it's all true. So I'll tell it today. Teach me summer, Lord, your summer. Sung by flaming tongues above. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord.
How's everybody doing? Good. Nice to be with y'all on this Sunday morning. Hope y'all had a nice week. We say hi, Leonard. <laughs> but um, if you want, we'll stand up, we'll pray, and we'll sing some music. Father, we're here for you this morning. Uh, we praise you for the sunshine and uh, just the joy of coming together as your church. Praising you and hearing your word and growing uh, as children, as disciples, as brothers and sisters. God, we just uh, pray for progress this morning in all our lives. We just uh, thank you for all you've blessed us with. We're grateful and glad we're here, God. We love you and we praise you. time of desperation all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe in this broken and temptation we believe 
kids, if you're in here, you're dismissed. You can go up to the kids' wing. Every nation and tongue 
He has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy of this? Well, He is. Well, He is. Well, He is. You see. Have a seat, everyone. It's kind of hard not to uh, hard to follow that if that puts you in a good space spiritually. I know it did me anyway. And um, when we gather, we know that our spirits kind of find a, an attunement with the Lord. And I hope that through our worship, uh, we're able to help all of you do that. And through the proclamation of the word, uh, it gives you a sense of what God's will and purpose is for our lives today. Uh, so with that said, kind of priming everything for why we're here, um, how's everybody doing? Good? Good to hear? Good prediction for the weather this week, hopefully, fingers crossed. But uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, we'll celebrate all things that we can this time of year. One thing I really want to celebrate with you is um, last week, a friend of ours um, uh, and, and her husband, uh, had a new baby, uh, and maybe you, you remember uh, Natasha, who used to attend here. Um, Natasha and her husband, JC, uh, a week ago Saturday, had a, 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 a little boy uh, named Sasha. Um, Natasha actually came here uh, as a Russian speaker, uh, very, very little English at all, and she's just blossomed in her faith and in her life, and in her life with JC, obviously, and it's continuing to grow and develop, and it's just uh, just a joy to celebrate that alongside those guys, uh, if you've known those guys uh, during the course of uh, Natasha's time here, and then, of course, they moved up north, uh, but we won't hold that against them, but we will uh, celebrate alongside them this uh, new addition to their family. Uh, so that's a good thing. Anything else that's worthy of praise? I know Ernie last week just went over the top with his wife, and he said, uh, he's still beaming over this, so something obviously took positive effect in their household from that. So good things happen when you go to church, right? Yeah, so got an amen over there. Um, so anyway, uh, you guys uh, have anything on your hearts that we can bring before the Lord? I know we have prayer concerns as well that I want to mention. So I'm just going to start off with a few off the top of my head. 
I want to pray for Rob Coffey, who's going to be uh, going on the 10th instead of the 7th. Um, there's an emergency that's come up for the surgeon, and so they had to postpone it. So hopefully that won't continue. Uh, but thankfully, his health has prevailed, and he's going in for bypass on the 10th of uh, March. So please keep him lifted up. I also want to pray for Vanessa Wine, who's waiting for surgery on her arm. So thankfully, the pain has subsided for her in that regard. And uh, hopefully, uh, God will get you through this, Vanessa. And um, as, uh, as we just think about that, I want to pray for Peg Panzot. He's going to have a procedure on Tuesday, so we'll keep you lifted up. And um, want to pray, uh, let's see, who else do I have here? They say, you, you know, you make your list too long and you start to forget. Um, I want to pray as well for um, uh, just what's happening in the Ukraine. Obviously, it's weighing on a lot of people's hearts. And my son especially, who's from the Republic of Georgia, which is just south of there, and he has friends over there, and he's worried that they're not going to be able to stay in that country either. But time will tell. But nonetheless, uh, bad things are happening in that part of the world. So we want to lift up the people of the Ukraine in our prayers. Uh, and hopefully there will be a peaceful resolution sometime soon. Um, anything else you guys have on your hearts? Yeah, Joyce? Okay, so pray for your Uncle Clifford. Would that be Laura's? And her sister's husband and two sons. Okay, all right. Uh, so Joyce Wolfgang brought up uh, her Uncle Clifford. Anyone else? Diane? Pray for Jeff Holland that his mother passed this week. Okay, Jeff Holland checks. Mother passed away. Okay. Any others? All right, well, let's just go ahead and pray. We'll take these things before the Lord. And anything you have on your heart, just lift it alongside uh, me as well as we go to the throne of God. So bow with me if you would. Lord Jesus, uh, after we just sang this song about your worthiness, and we just imagine that gathering that is at the end of it all where people are celebrating your name, every tongue and tribe and language, Every group of people on the planet that is called upon the name of the Lord and found salvation, we declare alongside them at this point on the timeline, holy, holy, holy is the, Lord's God, the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to be. Worthy is the Lamb. And as we just think about what that means in terms of our lives and how much of who we are is sourced in our relationship with you. We come here today, Father, needing your grace, needing your mercy. You know our brokenness. You know our conflictedness and divided thoughts. And yet, your grace prevails so much in ways that we can't even fathom. Your compassion, your desire for friendship, your hospitality that we celebrate every week around the table are just reminders of your posture towards us. And it is in our deep need that we come to our senses and realize that you are here for us, not against us. And your son is the means by which we can have access and have peace with you, even though you're perfect and we are by far, far from it. Lord, as we lift up the things that we've mentioned, we celebrate with JC and Natasha, 
um, their, new, their new baby and just pray for those who are en route expecting their own children for protection and care and for safe deliveries as well. We pray, Father, for the health concerns that we've mentioned. We pray for Vanessa and for Peg and for Rob Coffey. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would help them as well as Joyce's Uncle Clifford. And uh, we pray to be with Jeff Holinchek and just help him in this season of grief um, as he has to uh, release his mother to be with you. Just help him and use people who have gone through that to come alongside. We pray, Father, for what's happening in the Ukraine, and we pray that there would be a peaceful resolution and that those things that are destroying life and death and family and home and society, those forces would, would, would be abated and there would be um, a, a peace to return. And we pray that your church, however it is supposed to be deployed in these conditions, that you would be with the people who are trying to show the face of Jesus in the midst of all that chaos. We pray, Father, for ourselves as a church as we think about the lives and the people that we're surrounded by in this community and, and the, the new pathways, perhaps, that you're creating for us to reach out to them. We pray that we'd be in tune with your spirit, with your mission, with your purpose. We pray that as we gather for Lent on Tuesday and we, um, at least in our homes, but in spirit around um, your word, that you just activate within us a desire to, um, to, to be the church as uh, we take time to reflect, to look at our own lives, to look at our relationship with you, our relationship with other people, and to have the humility to say, I'm open to what you have to say to me, and I, I want to receive it so that you can help me to be the person that I need to be. Father, I pray for um, everything that is happening in this church in terms of where we are post-quarantine and where we are now, that we would be the body in the way that you want us to be. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your help with our friends who are gathered today and our friends who are here with us online. We ask that your mercy and your grace would be evident in every life. And Father, as we especially attune to what you're doing in the word and in these prayer requests and in our lives in this special moment called the first day of the week, and the first worship gathering of the week. We pray that you help us to, to offer the Lord's Prayer to you in a way that isn't just mechanical, but it's intentional. So would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and get to work uh, by looking at uh, a scripture today that's coming from the book of Luke. This is going to be the conclusion of that for a little while. We're going to move into the Lord's Prayer next week and explore some things that follow along with the Lent guide. And so if you're, um, if you're tracking in Luke, uh, just hold with us because uh, there's more to come after we get through Lent uh, that will be pretty exciting in the continuation of the drama that, um, that, that we're experiencing together. Because this is a... This
more than just a story from Bible times. And it's more than just a message in the gospel. It is the master showing us how it is that we're supposed to be the people of God. And I don't know if you've ever taken like a master class, but there are professionals in all domains right now who offer online the skill sets that offer their collected insights of how you play basketball, how you give a talk, how you um, work on a car, how you um, run a business, and just everything that you can imagine. There is a, a series of videos called uh, the Master Series, and it is designed to show us firsthand how the best of the best do it. And the reality is we've been going through the book of Luke and following, in a sense, that very same kind of course by looking at the life of Jesus and asking the question, what did life look like from the standpoint of following the master? And what is it that we as a church and we as just human beings can take away from that? Because I think Jesus has his work cut out for himself when he looks at the people that he's talking to in Luke 14. But knowing myself well enough, he's got his work cut out for me and for probably some of you, if not all of you guys. And this is a helpful chapter or helpful section, I think, for the good work that God's doing in our lives. So let's be open to it as we read it. Here we have, um, opening up with verse 1, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. I don't know if you caught this or not, but we've been eating a lot of meals on the way to Jerusalem with Jesus. And, of course, winter, I've been eating a lot of meals, too, and I'm kind of feeling it. But there's just a lot of food involved in this story that, um, that, that's unfolding to leading up to his crucifixion. And this is no different. But the thing about eating food in that time wasn't, hey, I'm hungry. I need to fill my stomach so that I can energize for the next thing I need to do. Back then, it was a, an event, a significant social event where when people showed up, there were designations of where you should and shouldn't sit. And maybe you even remember uh, having those gatherings with your own family. Certain patriarchs or people of importance would sit in key areas. And then there would always be that other room for the kids, you know, the kids' table. Did you guys ever have that? You know, send them off to the, to the kids' table. And then it was kind of cool to see people transition from the kids' table to the adult table, usually right around college, when they're starting to kind of, you know, practice being an adult, and they're on their own, and they're thinking about, you know, life as the adults experience it. So there's something about gatherings that have a lot to do with everything but food. And that's true here because Jesus is sitting at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, not just anybody, but a ruler, which I take that to mean this is a pretty important guy. Like, you have Pharisees, and then you've got sort of like the, the, the big kahuna. And he's at his house. And if you read this in, with, with just, you stop for a minute, you slow down, you say, and they were watching him carefully. Now, there's something going on there, but we're, gonna, we're not going to touch on that just yet, but in a second. And behold, 
there was a man before him who had dropsy. Anybody know what dropsy is? It's not like, you know, I drop something all the time, I got dropsy. No. I mean, it's kind of like edema. You know, you have water retention, and you can't, you can't, um, you, you can't, elim- your kidneys aren't eliminating the water like it needs to. And so there's a guy there, and he's somewhat disfigured because he's having water detention. Atten- uh, he's storing it. And, and so he's, uh, he's at the table as well. Probably a little bit distracting because there's a connection in the mind of people when a person has a physical ailment, there's always that question in the background, especially with the Pharisees, what did he do that caused that to happen? And some people symbolically said, well, he's retaining something, which means he's greedy or he's got avarice or he's got this desire to have more and more and more. And that was sort of a a, a vice connected to a person who had dropped, sort of a judgment that's being made about them because, oh, they have that, they must have a problem with that. And it does raise the question, and I want to start off with this question, is it ever good to judge? Because this is an area that Jesus has to go to work on in our lives, because I would guess that all of us in this room have an issue with judging. Now, I don't really have an issue when you come to church because my job is to try to disarm judging people and hopefully by the grace of God that draws us each in, you feel a sense of hospitality no matter where you are, where you've been, or what you've gone through, or what you're facing. We're all sort of humiliated at the foot of the cross because we all have stuff that's not right. That if people knew all the stuff that we had that wasn't right, we know we would be judged. And church is definitely one of those places where I try not to be Judge, it's hard to not be judgmental. And yet there are things that go on in our culture that say you shouldn't judge anybody. Everybody should be accepted. If I, if I do drugs, don't judge me. If I decide I'm going <clears throat> to drive my car super fast, don't judge me. It's kind of like you're preempting the notion of judging by saying already, yeah, I drive my car fast, don't judge me. Then you're like, well, obviously you don't have a place for truth in that equation. You just want to do what you want to do. Now, I'm picking on myself a little bit because I know in our culture we are, we are in a space where we live between relativism and legalism. Or if you look out on the screen, legal, relativism and legalism. Relativism is basically saying, everybody, you do what you want to do. And there is no consequence. But we know in our heart of hearts there's a consequence, right? If we do some things, they, everything has an effect. And sometimes it has a social consequence. But then there are other people who say you should do the right thing all the time. And their expectations are very high for everybody. And they'll embrace you until you step out of line. Then, well... You have a responsibility to be perfect, to show up perfect, to act perfect, and as soon as you don't, we're going to have to have a talk. Now, that's our world, and perfection may be measured by a whole lot of standards. In church, we have one thing, but it could be, you know, how racist you are or how 
how gender averse you are or all of the things that are happening that people are divided over. But how is it that we practice the art of managing the ability to judge? Because if you think about what we do in a church, those things affect our mind. And Jesus, who is the master, is trying to help you and I sort this out. And this is an occasion where I think we can explore that. And so I just, wanna, I just want you to consider for a second, when you have when, th- this, this, uh, this, this quote, give me truth without grace and I can't hear you. That means that Rachel is saying, Leonard, I got bad things to say about who you are. And she's saying it in a tone that's harsh. And let's say we, weren't, we didn't even know each other hardly, except we just come to church. I can't hear you because I don't know where your heart is. And then there's some of us say, give me grace without truth. But you know what? If we just keep enabling and enabling and enabling and enabling, we're going to create a monster. And so somewhere between truth and grace is the art of living life in a world where people are imperfect. And that's every one of us. And so when you think about that word judge, it actually has a lot of different meanings. And we know Matthew 7, 1, 7, 2, you know, judge, lest not you judge yourself. Um, And so it's a statement that we pull out. But what does that mean? If you look in the dictionary, it has it has the ability to you can you can judge to evaluate or discern, evaluate or discern. And that is, I'm going down the road and I'm making a, uh, I'm I'm going to my house and I'm and I'm navigating the road where I'm between the lines. I'm evaluating what the conditions are where I should and I shouldn't be. If I just wanted to drive where I, wherever I wanted to drive, I would just be crossing the line and stuff like that. By the way, this is probably an area that I struggle with in judging people. If I see somebody in front of me and they cross over that yellow line, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what they're doing. And so immediately I'm thinking, well, they have a problem with alcohol. They're probably alcoholics. I probably should call the police and tell them we've got somebody, you know, perhaps going to kill somebody or, you know, texting and driving. And I'm like, you shouldn't be doing that. But the funny thing is, I crossed the yellow line the other day, and I thought, oh, I wonder if anybody saw that, (laughs) you know? So then all the way home, I'm watching for the red lights to show up behind me. Sir, could you step out of the car? I just just played that over my head, but I'm like, "But, but that wasn't me. It's different. The conditions are different. Because sometimes when we are judgy, or somebody drives too slow, and I'm still getting over that. I got to think that if there was a purgatory, oh boy, I'm getting in trouble here. It'd be like, God would give me a very powerful Dodge Challenger, then he could say he can only drive at 30 miles an hour for a long time. That would be hard. But when we judge, we tend to condemn people. Like, we just sort of like relegate them to a category of discounting them and saying that they're not, they're not worthy. Jesus may be worthy, but 
they're not or you're not. Now, what Jesus saw going on in our hearts was that unhelpful response that we have towards one another as he's trying to accomplish something pretty dramatic. And John 10.10 says it well. It's a little bit of a paraphrase from the New Living Translation, but I like it. It says, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. And we can destroy people when we condemn them. However, Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Did you catch that? A rich and satisfying life. Now, you may be thinking right now, that means if I go get some scratch-offs at the Circle K right after, Lord, I've been to church, we can check the rich part off, and we'll work on the satisfying part. But I don't think that's what it means. If you know anybody, if you've heard those stories about people win the lottery, and then five years later they do an expose and they're worse off than before, it means that something didn't happen inside of them that enabled them to live that rich life. And that's the thing that Jesus is working on in your life and mine, that thing that has to happen inside of us in order to live that life. It's a process. And we're all a work in process. And there are a lot of people who don't like to go to church because the church hasn't been intentional about the fact that when we are in community with one another, it is easy to judge one another. It's easy to exclude one another. And I'm guilty of it like probably the next person. But the one thing I want people to do is come to church and discover that as we take the Lord's, uh, as we take communion, we're all sort of humiliated at the foot of the cross and we really aren't in a position to judge anybody. And I'd love for this to be a safe place where when we gather, we're discreet about gossiping, we're discreet about anything that might be damaging for other people, and we're helpful because we're now attuned to what Jesus' purpose was when he came, and it's supposed to become our purpose. So Jesus is looking at Sorry about this. Don't, don't judge me for not being good at this. Um, Jesus is looking at the ruler of the Pharisees who likes where he's at. He's positioned well in life. Life is good. And he looks at the man with edema or dropsy. And he knows what sort of baggage has been placed upon him socially. Like everybody's saying, he did that because he got greedy. He did that because he's filled with avarice. And so Jesus, as they're sizing him up, as they're judging him, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> now, just a couple of chapters ago, we just went down this road, didn't we? And he put them in their place. And so he asked them again. I don't know. He's provoking them for sure. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. But they remain silent. We know where you're going with this. We're not going to fall for it this time. So he took the guy that had edema and he healed him. And the guy didn't really want to hang around. So he went on his way. 
Well, Jesus looked at the rulers and the Pharisees and the people that had a view of how you connect with God that was very legalistic and very rigid, like we described before. And anybody who didn't fit into that mold, anybody who said any language that didn't correspond with how they thought the right way of thinking should be, well, they were ridiculed. They were deleted. They were unfriended. And Jesus looked at them with that very high-minded view of who they thought they were. And he asked them a question, which he's always doing. He's always asking questions. Almost everything that Jesus does is ask questions. You ask Jesus a question, you know what you're going to get back? Another question. (laughs) But you learn a lot as you do. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Well, they're like, we've been there, done that. We're not going to give you an answer. Because we're fundamentally in a different place on why we're doing what we're doing. And that really is the main idea here in this whole message and part of this series when we talk about the kingdom. It is Jesus, when he attended these meals, they were an opportunity in the minds of everybody socially to display your status. So when you had a meal and you sat in a certain place and you wore a certain type of garment, it was a way of sort of just showcasing to everybody and also demonstrating power over everybody that you had status. And that's what meals were used for, to display the packing order, who was where on the food chain, so to speak. And Jesus saw that, and he realized that when you, when you read the Bible, for example, it talks a lot about meals. It talks a lot about tables being set. Matter of fact, the ending of the, of the 23rd Psalm is, you know, you prepare a table before me, and it's a way of saying, I'm inviting you somewhere. And you hear that a lot in, in what Jesus teaches as well. Jesus came on the scene, and he's looking at humanity, and he's looking at the legalistic people. He's looking at other people who are saying, I gave up on the rules, because the people are, that are trying to maintain them, they're just hypocrites. So Jesus rewrote the rules by using meals as an opportunity to show God's hospitality. And that ritual, which is a very important ritual, and not meaningless by any stretch, but important, is is represented in the table that's behind me. We can't forget. This is God's hospitality. He's putting on this feast. And we got to remember why. Well, Jesus takes this opportunity to tell a story. But before I tell the story, I want you to understand something. In our culture, a lot of times, we've portrayed Christianity as a private thing between myself and God. And when I have communion, I'm thinking about my own guilt and and my own transgressions against God, which clearly we are guilty in God's eyes and we need forgiveness. But there's another aspect of it that is less between myself and God and more between myself and everyone around me that includes God 
that we don't think about, and it involves shame, which is something in our culture for a long time, many of us older people, shame really, people were pretty shameless. Shame really wasn't a thing. Now, with social media, that's actually changing, where shame is actually a very powerful thing that you can leverage and weaponize against people who, well, who maybe drive over the line for a second. And so here, here's a video. I want, I want you to, to absorb this because I think everything we say from there will make a lot more sense. In the beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for, powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle. You'd get their shame. We inherit shame, then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes, but the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status, but this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone, regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast, where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? 
The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. <clears throat> now, I don't know if that made sense to you, but it certainly is about, you know, that's my, my way of understanding things. If you had, if all theology was just like pictures, I'd probably be very happy. But that, I think, illustrates really well what is going on spiritually, that layer that Jesus is attacking. And he's trying to address in a way that hopefully puts people in a place where they see clearly that the shame and the honor and the things that we try to manufacture from a social point of view are just an attempt to recover what God has destined us to be to begin with as he made us in his image and his likeness. You know, when we look at people, we have different categories, don't we, of how we think about who they are. And yet the scripture reminds us that every human being on the planet is made in God's image. And it's clear that God looks at what's happened to our humanity, and he's, well, he's frustrated, he's disappointed, but beyond that, he's just heartbroken that things aren't where they need to be. So Jesus is having this encounter with a group of people, one of them being, of course, um, uh, the guy that um, was responsible for the meal, guy in charge. And so all of these people are dealing with their own manufactured honor. And they're doing it in the name of God in a way that says, yeah, we come to church, but there is a pecking order at church where some people are actually better than other people. You ever been to a church like that? Well, you shouldn't have been. Because there shouldn't be a church that says one person is better than another person. Now, we all have roles. Don't get me wrong. We need elders. We need, we need pastors. We need people that are, are, are serving in a variety of places. But those are just responsibilities that come with, a, if you're in that, in that role or that calling, you have a high accountability to keep it where it needs to be. So Jesus, with all that said, told a parable of those who were invited when he noticed how, how, um, how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you is invited um, by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person 
and then you'll begin, you begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. So like you're sitting in my seat, and obviously the person is dressed in a finer way. They carry themselves in, in a more powerful way, and maybe they're even a higher capacity person. You've accidentally sat in their chair, and they're saying, move it. So Jesus is basically calling them out. Because remember how this began? One Sabbath, there was a ruler, and there was also a man who had edema or dropsy. Two very different people, one with a lot of social capital, the other one not so much. And so when Jesus is looking at them, he's seeing fake honor and fake glory, and he's starting to call it out. And he's making them uncomfortable. Again, you remember that part of the video we just saw where the people in the, um, in the bottom with the car, they manufactured their glory. And they were like, if you're not like us, then you're nobody. You stand condemned. Or even the religious people that they show in the, in the skirts, which is weird. Uh, but this uh, missionary put this on, so you kind of got to think about that. The people who say, well, we go to church. We got our lives together. We sacrificed sinning, and you're not, and so therefore you stand condemned. Jesus recognizes our tendency to want to be at the top of the food chain, to want to be significant, to want to be worthy. And I have to agree, there's nothing wrong with that. We are actually, by design, supposed to be significant in the economy of things. We're supposed to be worthy in the economy of things. So much so that in the beginning, the story started out by saying, we were given dominion over it all. Which tells me that God had a very high regard for who we are. But how we managed that role, that's where we got into all the trouble. And, you know, so on the next slide... Uh, you see how this plays out. There's another person who says, I am so unworthy, I wouldn't even come to church unless something bad happens to the church. And so there's one group that says, I have an over-calibrated sense of worth. And there's another group that says, I'm not worth anything. And I've had people tell, tell me that my whole life. And then there's Jesus who comes speaking truth and grace. To people that need to be brought down, he brings us down. To people that need to be elevated, he elevates. But he elevates us to a place where we find who we are supposed to be in the right way as we find him and as we find God. And then we start looking at people differently. We start wake, if we've been beaten down, we start waking up every day and we say, I'm made in God's image. I'm a child of God. God loves me. He's invited me to his house. And that's pretty significant. And then there are other people. you, And they come to their senses and they realize, yeah, I've made this all about me. And I don't think that's right either. And Jesus brings that person to their awareness that maybe it's time to serve other people. 
And there's something about that space that Jesus sees that we are so miscalibrated from because we're either too unworthy or we have too high of an estimation of ourselves that he has to call us out when we think we are so great, we are all that, and everybody else is a nobody. He busts us down. And I can assure you, if you call yourself a Christian, which hopefully you do, myself included, if we get a little bit too full of ourselves, he'll find a way to help us develop a taste for humble pie. And if we don't think well enough of ourselves, he will use people around us to come alongside and say, you're worthy. Jesus died for you. And Jesus wants to come alive in you. And Jesus wants to see you become who you were supposed to be to begin with. And the only way that happens is when your life is sourced in him. Do you know what you, know what you have when you have a life not sourced in him? Just a person trying to sell themselves through their ego. Like me and how I present myself to the world, that's what's going to get it done. But it's much larger than anything we can manufacture. The only way to get it done, the only way to be who we are supposed to be is to connect our lives with Jesus. I say that unashamedly. I say that humbly because I've been humiliated by trying to do it without doing that. I say that from experience. There's only one way, and it's the way that says, I'm making Jesus front and center in my life. It's the only way my relationships work. It's the only way my job works. It's the only way my social interaction works. And Jesus is trying to show them that by describing this meal. And so let's, let's just kind of conclude here a little bit. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes by, comes, comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And this is kind of veiled language. He's essentially saying to you and I, if we come before the Lord in a spirit of dependency and humility, he will 10 times out of 10, he'll lift us up and he'll restore our joy. And so as a believer, you have to be careful about being presuming, presumptive, about judging in a condemning way. There's a lot of stuff that Jesus says, I want this baked into you so that your life is rich and it is satisfying. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the big takeaway is that in God's kingdom, our social status is defined by our faithfulness, our humility, and serve an attitude. Now, you can have social media social status. You can have social social status. 
but we're talking about kingdom social status. This is how we are supposed to posture our attitude towards the Lord, towards other people, if we want to be who we're supposed to be. And what's so interesting about it is once you're doing that, you're not thinking about how much better am I than other people because you've already settled it. We're all in this together. We're all part of the same family. We're all working together. And it's a good space to be in. It's that space I mentioned a minute ago where humanity finds its sweet spot. Not too much, not too little, but just right. And so he said also that the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So it's all about, hey, Let's just exchange moments of glory together and put on display for everybody else. Hey, we had a great party the other night. Guess who was there? Only the important people. Hey, guess what? I had a party too. Guess who was there? Also only the important people. And Jesus has kind of taken what should have been a religious discussion, and he's seeing how people are trying to manufacture honor in ways that just are not sustainable is not sustainable. It will set you up for fall because guess what? When the conditions aren't right in your life, they'll kick you out of that group because you're not of any use to them anymore. And yet Jesus says, I'm not kicking anybody out of my group. I bore the shame. I bore the condemnation. I did what you needed and couldn't provide for yourself. And I gave the honor. And I gave the status of being reintegrated into God's family. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid by, at the resurrection of Jesus. And I would also say, from experience, you're also repaid even as you serve those who are hurting and broken. It just starts right there. And when you look at, this, look at the, uh, the slide again where Jesus bears our shame, don't forget this. Because the scripture is very clear. The writer of Hebrews talks about Christ being crucified outside the gate, which was humiliating enough, separate from his people, and despised the shame not just the shame that came on him, but why it came on him, because it seems like it was part of the makeup of everybody that he died for. He just despised that. He wanted us to be who we were supposed to be so badly that when he took on our shame, he despised the fact that it was a thing that he had to take on. But he also knew you can't just take it away and then it just goes away. You have to fill that with something else. And the writer of Hebrews says, but for the joy set before him, he remained faithful to doing what he needed to do. That's Jesus. That's why he is worthy. That's why that last song we just sang is so powerful because he did something that we can't, and he gave us something that we cannot find anywhere but through him. And Jesus restores our honor. I mean, there's something about finding that space. We'll go to the next slide real quickly where we are given our dignity back in Christ. We are given our adoption papers. We're restored. It's a very legal transaction. 
and it's very real. But we sometimes forget when we go back across the bridge, and God's patient and loving and kind. But sometimes when we're too high, he busts us down again. But it's okay. Because he doesn't want to keep us there, and he doesn't want to inflict any more or allow any more to be afflicted on us than is absolutely necessary. But I, I can tell you, I've gone through seasons where I've dealt with physical issues, emotional issues, anguish, despair. And not every time, but probably the majority of the time, it was God's call back to him. And sometimes it was just like, God, I just have to give this to you. Help me by your mercy. And it's amazing how God loves to respond to that because he doesn't want us to be in that space. His heart intention is that we might have life in Christ. So the last takeaway is this. We connect with people socially by preparing our hearts with God beforehand so we can meet them in a life-giving way. The Pharisee wasn't really interested in that. He just had a lot of rules. And the guy at Dropsy was breaking rules all over the place. Jesus was breaking rules all over the place. His heart was not right. And the way you prepare your heart is you say, God, help me to be who I need to be around the people that you are engaging me with today. Help me to see them and have the presence of mind to see them as you see them. And then we engage with people socially by asking God to work through our lives so that we can be the blessing that he wants us to be. That really is a goal, all the way back to Abraham. And our challenge as a church is just to begin to practice that. And so I had a couple of practices that I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to mention as we end. One of the best ways to advance God's kingdom is to show hospitality by inviting people in your home for a meal or at a church gathering to meet your family. I'm, he probably doesn't want me to mention it, but uh, <laughs> Jerry was just talking about the challenge of inviting Chinese neighbors who have English issues for a meal. That's a challenge. I would have shied away from that a little bit. But there's something about when Jesus comes alive in our lives, we just want to open it up. And the second one is begin to see all the people around you, no matter where you go, whether you're following on the road, whether you're going to a part of town that you kind of want to avoid, whether you're going to a place to shop where you're like only those kind of people go there, remind yourself of this. Whoever you see that's a human being, Jesus died for. And his goal is to restore the brokenness of his image in them and treat them with the dignity that God gave them at birth. Those are just a few things that we can just start to work on as we think about other people, the way they've crossed us in ways that upset us, make us want to condemn them. Maybe God's working on your heart today. I know he's certainly working in mine in areas like that. Because I want to see everybody 
become the people that Jesus wants them to become. And I hope that's your desire as well. So I'm going to pray for you, pray for us, and pray about this as I end. Lord Jesus, I know that you are at work in this room, in our hearts, and I pray that what we've gathered from your encounter in this passage will have a lasting effect on how we look at other people, how we shame other people, how we manufacture our own honor so that we can find worth in some other place than you. I pray, Father, that you just help us to calibrate who we are, not too high, not too low, but just right in that space where we have a spirit of faithfulness and humility and serving. I pray that you help us to be that church as we take what we've learned from the Master today and we ask you, Lord Jesus, to help us to see how we can connect the dots in our lives with the people that you place in front of us. Help us, Lord, to be the people you call us to be. And for those who are not owners of the adoption papers that you provide, I just pray for anyone here that is in that space where you are calling them. I just pray that they wouldn't hesitate, but they would embrace your embrace, Lord, that they would receive your code of honor and your adoption papers and your, your wonderful, overwhelming love. Thank you that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. There is no condemnation when we call on the name of the Lord and find forgiveness from our sins as we turn away from them and as we give them to that place where you hung, a bloodstained cross, and we seek your forgiveness so that our lives can be restored. Only you, Lord Jesus, can do that. And I know you call all of us to that space of invitation because you despise the shame that you see in us so much that you want to make us whole again. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just be at work in every heart here as we take this before your throne. In Jesus' name. today, a powerful message of, of hope and forgiveness. Uh, I think as humans, it's hard to sometimes think that we, uh, we deserve forgiveness. Uh, we just can't comprehend it, so we carry it with us our whole lives. Um, most of us have crossed that yellow line in the road. Uh, some of us even ended up in the ditch upside down on the other side of the road, waiting on somebody to come and rescue us. As Christians, we know who our rescuer is, and we reach out and remember him, you know, for what he's done for us today. Uh, judgment and condem condemnation, a couple pretty powerful words there. And we're all condemned in our own minds and by others, and yet it's hard to imagine on judgment day when we stand before our Lord and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't remember that. 
we've been forgiven. And we have to remember that. We have to live with that in our hearts every day and to know that God's cast away the, the sins, the memories. He doesn't remember the things we've done. We've been accepted by him. So uh, let's just take that with us this week and uh, try and live as we're supposed to as we read in his words. So if you'd bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we can come into your house to hear your word spoken in a way that we can understand and give us hope and direction and a way to look forward to going on with our lives. We just thank you, Lord, that uh, as we partake of this loaf and cup, these are the emblems that we remember your sacrifice that made these things possible. So as we partake now, we just want to give thanks and look forward to the coming days that we can reach out to others in a way that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray, amen.
draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise on Jesus, thank you for what you've accomplished. Thank you because we sa- we sang that you are worthy, and you are so because you took on the guilt and the shame of the, all those who are unworthy, and we are worthy made in you. Thank you that there's nothing in us that could benefit you in any way. You came for that reason, not in spite of it. And thank you that you've given us hearts that beat for you now. You restored us to God and made us made us Godward people. May we bear fruit in this as we leave from here in humility. And thank you for the opportunity to walk in your ways, guided by your truth and comforted by your grace, which we have received because you are gracious. And it's for your wonderful name we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Just want to say one more thing before you go. We have Lent guides right out the back on the uh, on the table. Please take them. We're doing them a couple weeks at a time up through Easter, and we're hoping our whole church will be involved in that. So they're free. And uh, we also have, if you want to be a part of a community that talks about it once a week, uh, there are sign up sheets out there for any groups that um, uh, we can form with uh, with our people here that you may or may not be a part of. So with that, may God bless you and keep you uh, until uh, we're gathering again.